0: I would encourage you to take your Bible or the one in the pew rack in front of you and turn to the third reading that uh, Dave read for us a few moments ago from Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 3. That's where we're going to focus our attention this morning as we continue in our journey toward the celebration of Christ's birth. And today I I want to talk to you about the need to sober up uh, for Christmas. I want you to imagine a scene with me for a moment in your mind's eye. You're driving down I-79. Your mind is a a thousand miles away. You're lost in thought, almost uh, at a point of being semi-comatose. Have you ever been there and done that? When all of a sudden you are jerked into a state of alertness and you look in your rearview mirror and you see there in your rearview mirror a Pennsylvania state trooper who is coming up fast behind you, and the lights on his car are beginning to twirl, and you hear the sound of his siren. Have you been there? What happens in that moment? Immediately, you are brought out of your semi-comatose condition, and you are snapped back into the present moment. If you're like me, your heart probably starts pounding and the adrenaline starts coursing through your veins and your foot automatically goes off of the gas pedal and onto the brake, which is not a good thing to do when a state trooper is following you. You quickly check your speedometer and you realize that you've been going 85 miles per hour this is just a fictional story. <laughs> in a 65 mile per hour speed zone, you check your rearview mirror, you're completely alert, you start reaching for your glove box for your insurance card and your registration, and every nerve in your body is tingling. And then the trooper pulls out around side of you and speeds on down the highway. That is what I call a, a sobering experience. Uh, Kathy is so worried about me when I drive alone without her. She wonders how I get anywhere safely without her encouragement and her hand on my knee to break and her silent directional signals when I'm to turn right and left. Because my habit is that when I'm in a car, I tend to get lost in thought. I'm in a daze. And then every once in a while, something like I've just described will suddenly jar me to attention, will snap me back into the present moment, and I'm all of a sudden sobered up and alert to the moment. And friends, what I've just described this morning is what I think exactly... God has in mind uh, through the ministry of John the Baptist, which we read about in Luke chapter three, and what which God has in mind as we prepare once again to celebrate the birth of Christ. I believe that there needs to be a sobering up, a snapping to attention, a waking up in order to prepare the way of the Lord. You heard it in our Old Testament reading this morning. As the Old Testament prophet Isaiah puts it, we need to straighten up and fly right in order that we might see the salvation of God. And in our Gospel text today, in Luke's Gospel, essentially that is what is happening when John the Baptist is out in the wilderness. He is preparing the way of the Lord. And he is seeking to accomplish a sobering up, a snapping to attention. John's ministry, John the Baptist, was to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. John is the forerunner of Jesus. He's the one who comes to announce the coming kingdom. And his preaching is, let me tell you, John's preaching is not seeker-sensitive. Uh, Willow Creek and Saddleback would not be very happy if John the Baptist were their teaching pastor. Because he violates every rule. I mean, did you see how he addressed the crowds? You brood of vipers. Now let me tell you, as a preacher, there are often those tempting moments when... (laughs) I'm so glad in those hours, I pray, yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. When you want to address an audience and say, as John the Baptist did, you brood of vipers, you. But he, he land-based them. He, he, he comes preaching, as verse three says, he comes preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He doesn't mince words. He cuts it very straight with these people. And he says to them, look, the Messiah is coming and you had better be cleansed from your sin. The emphasis of John's preaching was one of repentance. Sadly today, there's not a whole lot of preaching from the pulpits of America that focuses on the need for repentance. John sets the model for the evangelist and the preacher to talk about the need for repentance. The need to turn from our selfish, sinful, and disobedient ways and to turn to God. And his preaching, I think, has the sobering effect of the highway patrolman's lights in our rearview mirror. John tells the people, look, the axe is ready to be struck at the root of your trees. And the fire of God's wrath is ready to fall. And you better straighten up and fly right if you want to see the salvation of God. He pulls no punches. There are no poles barred. He says, wake up. Get right with God. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In effect, what John is saying is your Messiah is about to come. And you'd better be ready. That is a message I think that the church of Jesus Christ needs to hear again in our day. I think we've lost our way. I think that in many ways we have been lulled into sleep. We are spiritually in a semi-comatose condition, and we're driving down life's highway, totally unaware that the time of the coming of the Lord is near, I believe that we are closer to the coming of the Lord than we've ever been before. And I believe that the Lord is coming soon. I see signs of it everywhere I look. I see it in, uh, in our society I see it in, in the economic and global crisis that we're in. I see it in the leadership crisis that faces not only uh, a nation, our nation, but also our world. And John says to the people, you better get right with God, because the time is near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I think that this message should be of great interest to every one of us in this room this morning. Because I believe that today there is a message of shallow repentance that is being preached uh, 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 around America and around the world today. It's often called easy believism or cheap grace. It goes like this. All you need to do is just believe in Jesus. That's all you need to do. Just believe. In Jesus, And I think, friends, and I hope you'll hear me this morning, this is not the easiest message to preach this morning. But I believe that that message of cheap grace, of shallow repentance, of easy believ- believism, is 180 degrees from the message that John preaches. A message of true repentance. And so this morning, I want us to focus on John's message of repentance for a moment. Now, there was nothing easy about John's message. There was nothing about John's message that was warm and fuzzy and made you feel good. It didn't accentuate the positive. It was harsh. It was strong. It was confrontational. It was devastating because John understood the condition of the heart of mankind, how prone we are, to a shallow, superficial repentance that does not save. And I'm convinced, you may disagree with me, but I'm convinced that churches today are literally filled with, pews are filled with people who've had a shallow, non-saving repentance. And they are categorized into that, that quote that comes from Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus says that many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and what does the Lord say to them? Depart from me, I never knew you. I think that there's going to be a number of surprises when the Lord comes back. I think there are going to be some people that we thought were living a holy and righteous life, but they never truly repented of their sins. And they bought into an easy believism, a cheap grace, a just believe in Jesus kind of thing. They are the soil that Jesus tells in His parable of the soils. The kind of soil that receives the Word initially and with maybe even some emotion and embrace the Word. But because that soil is never plowed up, it remains hard and it is weedy And either the rocks or the weeds eventually choke out the Word of God. And the Gospel is never flowering in their life and there's never any fruit in their life that would cause you to know that they are truly saved. I believe that shallow repentance is common in our day as it was common in John's day in Israel. It was common in the Old Testament. It was common in the New Testament. And it's common today. And there are those around us who would seek to strip the gospel of its confrontation. This this gospel is offensive. The cross of Christ is offensive. It should cause you to stop in your tracks, to be alert, to know that this is not just a game we're playing here, but this is serious, eternal business. And there are those who would strip the gospel of its law, and the wrath of God, and judgment, and sin. And just want to talk about the love of Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm grateful for the love, grace, and mercy of God in Jesus Christ, aren't you? But if we strip the gospel of the wrath of God, then we only have a partial gospel. John knew that. We should know that too. And so what John does, in essence is he's trying to draw out the essence of real repentance in his preaching. And our text tells us that that people were interested in what John had to say. In fact, the crowds followed him. All of Jerusalem and Judea came out to hear what John had to say. People were flocking. I mean, it was standing room only to hear John preaching out in the wilderness. Now, I want to tell you, there was nothing, absolutely nothing, that should have attracted anybody to listen to John. You know what his, his diet was? Locusts and, and wild honey. And, and he didn't have a designer suit on either. And I'm sure it had been a long time since he had had a good bath. There was nothing about him that should have attracted a crowd. But the crowds were interested in what John had to say. Why were they so interested at someone who was hurling abuse at them in his message? I think the answer is fairly simple and obvious. They're interested in John the Baptist's message because there had been no word from God for nearly 400 years. And people knew that John was not preaching his own word, but he was preaching the truth of God's word. They had a sense that he was preaching truth. And when he was talking about the coming of the Messiah, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They came out. They were curious. They were ready for the Messiah. Their hopes were high that the Messiah would come. Why is this so important to the nation of Israel, to these Jews? It's important because they were weary from the oppression of the Romans who were over them. The Jews were weary of Roman oppression They were ready for their own King. And they were ready for the fulfillment of everything that had been promised to them by the prophets of old. That had been promised to Abraham and to David. And they hadn't yet seen that fulfillment. Yet here was one, John the Baptist, who was coming to them and announcing that the Kingdom is near. The Messiah is coming. And so their ears perked up. And they were ready for the Messiah the Redeemer, the One who would bring about this new covenant salvation, new covenant forgiveness, and would usher in the fulfillment of all that had been promised to their father Abraham and to David as well. They were ready. They were ripe for this message of John. They wanted to participate in the blessings that had been promised to them by the prophets. And so I'm convinced that when they came to hear John and his preaching, they were really asking John, how do I stay in the kingdom and not how do I get into the kingdom? Because you see, I think they believed they were already in the kingdom. They were children of Abraham. They were Jews, good Jews. Why would they have to get into the kingdom? And so they're... Uh, their thought when they come to hear John and his message, his announcement of preparing the way of the Lord, they think, well, we've got it made. We're, We're here. We've arrived. This message is for somebody else. This message is not for us. I always worry about that when I preach. That people have a filter on and they think, well, I don't need to listen to this message. This message obviously is for someone else. This message is not for me. I'm already in. But I want you as best as you can this morning, I want you to not only listen with both of your ears, but I want you to listen with the ears of your heart this morning and evaluate honestly before God. Are you really a part of the kingdom? Are you really? Or are you just playing game? Are you just putting on a show? Are you just going through the motion? John sounded an alarm and announced to them that they didn't need to find out how to stay in the kingdom, but instead they needed to find out how to get into the kingdom because they were on the outside looking in and they were no better off than the Gentiles. You see, John was aware in his day of shallow conversion. He was aware that the Jewish people were very good at superficial religion. And so he had to do something to jar them out of their drowsy sleep. And so he takes them, as it were, by the neck, and he shakes them up real good, just like the lights of the state trooper. He shakes them up and says, You better get ready. Because the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and be baptized. Now with that as background, I want us to to look this morning at this idea of repentance for a moment. And notice that there is a stark contrast between true biblical repentance and the kind of false repentance that is often touted uh, today and is all too common. you you have the right to ask, so Rick, what is repentance? Fundamentally, repentance means to change your mind about something. To change your mind. Repentance literally means an afterthought or a change of mind. But biblically, it doesn't stop there. The Greek word for repentance is the word metanoia. Metanoia, made up of two parts. The the prefix meta, which means after, and noeo, which means to understand. It has to do with, this word metanoia has to do with a a way that you think about something. That is to say that, that at one time you thought about something in this way, but there's been a change, a repentance, and you've begun to think about that whatever that something is, you've begun to think about it in another way. That's repentance, a changing of the mind, metanoia. Let me give you an example of that. Let's, let's suppose for a moment that, that an individual wants to learn how to parachute. I don't know why they'd want to do that, but uh, let's suppose they wanted to learn how to parachute. So, so he goes to parachute school, and uh, they show him in the school how to rig up his gear, and how to pull the ripcord, and how to land safely, and all the rudiments of a safeful, safe uh, safe uh, parachute drop. And finally, the day comes when the parachutist is, is going to have his first chance to drop out of the airplane. And so the, the plane ascends up into the heavens and the door is open and the parachutist, trying to remember all the lessons that he learned in the classroom, checks all of his rig, all of his gear, has his hand ready, to to pull on the ripcord as he jumps out. The moment comes when he is to jump from the plane. He goes to the airplane and he sees the ground below him 7,000 feet below him and his legs grow weak and his knees are wobbly and he's about to barf. And his teacher is right behind him saying, Jump! Jump! You can do it! Jump! But he says, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to jump. I've changed my mind. That is repentance. I was going in a direction. Everything was leading me in that direction. But I've changed my mind. I'm not going to go in that direction anymore. And the parachutist has changed his mind in a very decisive way. It's not kind of a mamby-pamby decision. It's a decisive, intentional decision. No, I'm not. He's repented of his decision. And I think that that amusing little story illustrates uh, just how repentance should work in our life. Repentance is a change. It's a change in the way I think that leads to a change in the way I live. Don't miss that. Repentance is a change in the way I think that leads to a change in the way I live. I want to say to you today that when you change your mind, When you truly repent, it's not going to involve just a change of mind, but it's going to change the way you think about it, the way you talk about it, the way you feel about it, the way you act about it. What I'm suggesting to you this morning is that true biblical repentance is not just a mental game. Repentance is a decisive change in direction. I, I've heard this illustration a long time ago. I, I think I've even used it here. But the best way that I can illustrate repentance to you is that I'm going in one direction, decidedly going in that direction, but something snaps me back too. I'm sobered up and I become alert and i have stopped in my tracks and hear truth and all of a sudden, I turn around 180 degrees and I go in a brand new direction. That is repentance. And that change of direction doesn't just change the way I think about it, but it changes the way I live. It changes my values. It changes the things that I do. It changes the places that I go. It changes the the, the fabric of the relationships that I have. And if this repentance does not have that kind of all-encompassing effect, I would submit to you this morning that it is not an example of true biblical repentance. But it's a shallow repentance that might just be stuck in the intellect and has never made it its way down that longest 18 inches that exists between the head and the heart. A change of purpose and direction. A change of feeling that leads to a change of values. That leads to a change in the way you live. Here I think, my friends, is the rub. I hear a lot of people say, Jesus has changed my life. And I don't want to judge too harshly. But I'm often in my own heart want to say, what has changed? Is it just your thoughts? Has it changed at the level of your will? Has it changed the way you do relationships? Has it changed the things that you love? Has it changed the the people that you, you spend time with and hang out with? You see, I believe that true repentance involves three elements. A turning to God, a turning from evil, and an intent to serve God. And if there's not those three elements, then based on what I read in Scripture, that is not true repentance. A turning to God, a turning from evil, and the intent to serve God. No change of mind, I think, can be called true repentance without including all three elements. Repentance is not merely being ashamed or sorry over your sin. Although genuine repentance will cause you to be remorseful and sorry for your sin and will include the element of godly sorrow, true repentance is a redirecting of the human will. It is a stopping in the tracks and moving you in a new direction. It's an intentional and purposed decision to forsake unrighteousness and pursue righteousness instead. The problem that I see with so much today in the Christian faith and Christ, in the lives of Christ's followers, is that we, instead of pushing away unrighteousness and then following hard after God toward righteousness, is that many Christians, many Christ followers, see how close they can live to unrighteousness and the things of the world without slipping over the tipping point. Listen, if you are truly sorry for your sins, if you have purposed in your soul to repent of your decision to go in the ways of the world, it should have such a powerful effect in your life that you say no to unrighteousness and you say yes to God. Notice, it's a redirection of the will. Not just mental activity, but something that reaches into the core of our being and I think hits three levels. First of all, it hits us intellectually. Repentance begins with a recognition and an understanding that we are sinners. That our sin, and I'm not not sure how many really grasp this point, but that our sin, my sin, your sin, is an insult, It is an affront to a holy God. And that our depravity is something that is not only displeasing, but is not tolerated by a God of holiness. The problem, I think, with so many today is this. They believe that they deserve God's grace and forgiveness. If you've fallen into that, let me just remind you, friends, that if you and I got what we deserve and the wrath of God were unleashed upon us, we would be instantaneously turned into a cinder. Every one of us in this room. There is not one of us who deserves to be saved. There's not one of us who is worthy of the gift of forgiveness. I am not worthy. You are not worthy. None of us is worthy to meet that love that comes to us from God. And that's the only way, my friends, that we can be ready to receive His gift is when we acknowledge at the level of our intellect, I am not worthy and recognize that I am a sinner, completely unworthy. But not only is there an, uh, an intellectual component to repentance, but I believe that there's also an emotional component to it as well. Emotionally, genuine repentance expresses remorse and sorrow over sin. Expresses genuine sorrow over sin. Let me give you a a, a case study of someone who did not sense genuine sorrow over their sin. Judas of Iscariot, one of Christ's twelve disciples. According to Matthew 27 and verse 3, Judas felt remorse, but he was not truly repentant. In fact, he was so filled with uh, guilt and shame that ultimately he took his own life. Or take the example of the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 22, who the Scripture says went away after hearing the words of Jesus, And the answer to his question, what must I do to enter into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus gave his answer, and the scripture says in Matthew that he went away, the word is sorrowful. He was full of sorrow. He felt sorry, but he wasn't repentant. He felt badly over over his own sin. He saw it. Intellectually, he saw it. But there was not a willingness To repent and move in a new direction. He was not repentant. He was sorry, but non-repentant. False repentance can say, I'm sorry. But it's just an outward and oriented towards self kind of sorrow. It's not a sorrow toward God. I remember when our our three children were little and they'd get into a scrap now and then. Can't imagine, can you? And they'd start uh, saying things that were unkind or, or maybe pinching or biting or hitting or all sorts of unruly behavior, shall we say. And when there was correction applied to the southern end of their being, there was always the need for them to say, I'm sorry. And there would be those occasions when Uh, Jared, in particular, our strong-headed one, would look at his sister and he'd say, I'm sorry. You have to know that I really wasn't buying his sorrow. And I see some people, when it comes to repentance, and Sorry that I got caught. Sorry that people know. But not truly sorry over their sin and disobedience. False repentance can be sorry. The falsely repentant person may even come to God. And momentarily fear God's judgment and say to God, I'm sorry. He or she may go to an evangelistic rally. And at the end of that rally, as the the hymn, Just as I am, is being sung over and over again, is moved emotionally, and since his life has not been happy and he wants to be happy, he joins the crowd at the front and he says, I'm sorry, God, for my sin. But unless that person faces the corruption of their heart before a holy God, there is no way that they can have godly sorrow over it. He or she is not truly sorrowful for offending God's holiness. He does not cry out to God for a new heart that will hate sin and love righteousness. Like Esau, the the falsely repentant person may regret, even with tears, that he's lost his birthright, but he truly is not sorry. Like Judas, he might feel badly that he has betrayed the Son of God for a few pieces of silver, but his repentance is just a superficial repentance that doesn't go to the core of the heart. So, true repentance has an intellectual component to it, it has an emotional component to it, but thirdly, there's a volitional dimension to repentance. That is to say, that it is something that goes to the level of our will. Repentance, true biblical repentance, always, always, hear me, if you hear nothing else I say this morning, hear this. True biblical repentance, always involves a change of direction, a transformation of the will. It's not just a change of mind, but instead it involves a determination to abandon stubborn disobedience and to surrender to the will of God, to say no to sin and disobedience, but to say yes to God. Years ago, when I first came to First Alliance as senior pastor, We had a minister of music. His name was Randy Vandemark. Delightful young man. He and his wife Cindy and their family live outside of uh, Cleveland now and serve the Alliance Church there in Middleburg Heights. Randy occasionally uh, would walk by my office and I would say, Randy, where are you going? And he would say, Will and I are going to pray. And I'd look down the hall I didn't see anybody else. I said, you and Will are going to pray? He said, that's exactly right. Will and I are going to pray. Some of us in this room would benefit from spending time in praying with Will. And going to God and saying, God, I'm not only sorry for my sins, But I am willing to lay it all out to be honest and to surrender my all to you. I believe that genuine repentance will inevitably result in a changed behavior. And if there's no change in behavior, then I question the genuineness of the repentance. I like what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great pastor of Westminster Chapel in London, said about repentance i put the words on the screen for you. It's so good. Repentance means that you realize that you are a guilty, vile sinner in the presence of God. That you deserve the wrath and punishment of God. That you are hell-bound. It means that you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in you. That you long to get rid of it and you are turning your back on it in every shape and form. You renounce the world whatever the cost. The world in its mind and outlook as well as its practice, and you deny yourself and you take up the cross and go after Christ. Your nearest and your dearest and the whole world may call you a fool or say that you have religious mania. You may have to suffer financially, but it makes no difference because that is repentance. Dear friends, if you have truly turned from sin to God, and there's a change of direction in your life, your life will show it. There will be fruit of repentance. John gets into that, and, and we don't have time to, to, to go into that part of it today, but, but did you notice what, they, what the people who were coming to him and saying, what do we need to do, John, if we're going to repent? And and he says this will result in good works. It will result in fruits of repentance. So that if you have truly repented then, you will be prompted to take one of your two tunics and give one tunic to the needy person or his word to the tax collector. The tax collectors came and said, well, what should we as tax collectors do? If if we've truly repented, if there is isn't indeed a change in our life, again down to the level of change in behavior you should only collect that which is is due the government don't you don't you uh, in a usurious way charge any more than what is owed and to the soldiers that came who said what should we do lord to john what should we do and john said if you've truly repented then you will not be guilty of extortion you see, again, this this underscores and supports the point that I'm making to you. That it's not just about saying, I believe in Jesus. Yes, I believe in Jesus. But it's a, I believe in Jesus. I repent of my sin. And this repentance is going to the deepest part of me, and it's causing me to have a change of mind and direction. And I'm going in a new way, and, and I'm going to serve God, and I'm going to put away unrighteousness, and sin, and disobedience, and filthy habits, and filthy language, and, and relationships that are not glorifying to God. I'm going to put those things away. And instead of saying... Uh, No to righteousness and yes to unrighteousness. I've had a change of mind and heart and will. It's gone from my intellect down to my will, and now I'm saying yes to righteousness. I'm saying whenever God prompts me, I'm going to move toward God, not to see how far away from God I can be and still be a Christian, but I'm going to follow hard after God. That is repentance. That is repentance. It's so crucial. Though so to understand that repentance also is a gift from God. It's a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 tells us that we're all born with a sin nature that constantly leads us away from God. The hymn writer caught this in his words. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone. That is bent toward. Bent toward sinning. Bent toward disobedience. Because of our depraved nature, our inclination left to our own devices, do you think you're going to choose good? Absolutely not. You're going to choose left to your own devices? You're going to choose evil every time. So, that sin nature in me has to be dealt with and come under the surrender and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And when I repent and have this change of direction, and we understand that it's a progressive work of the Spirit in us, but He will cause us to change. No one will ever have the slightest desire to change, to truly repent. No one will have the power to make that change unless and until God touches that person's heart and makes that old, hard, stony heart soft and pliable like a lump of clay. You cannot genuinely repent unless God has stirred up in your heart and has rained conviction down on your life and has made you aware of your own vileness and your own guilt before a holy God. Repentance is a gift that comes from God. So what does repentance look like in practical terms? Five quick statements. I'm not going to, to expand on them. I'm just going to give them to you. Here's five statements that I think help answer that question. What does repentance practically look like? Number one, I admit that I'm a sinner, that I did wrong. Number two, I feel godly sorrow over my sin. Number three, I confess my sin to God and I confess it to others. I bring an accountability partner into my life. And I say, look, this is uh, an Achilles heel for me. This is an area of weakness and vulnerability for me, and I want you to hold me accountable. That, I think, was the genius of John Wesley and the small classes and bands that were part of the early Methodist movement. They would meet together for class meeting. And they would talk to each other about their journey with God. And they would be honest with one another. And the question of the class meeting was this. How is it with your soul? I remember as a child, my grandmother for a time was the head of the class meeting that our families were a part of. And I remember my grandmother with her free Methodist bun pulled tight to the back of her head. And she would stand before the class meeting And she would say that question, how is it with your soul? And there would be times of confession, there would be times of of testimony, and at the end of the class meeting, the question was, are all hearts clear? I wonder what would happen if we would institute that practice again. If instead of putting on our churchy face, On Sunday morning, we would get real with one another and say, you know what, I have feet of clay. And there's areas in my life that I'm struggling with. I'm not going to pretend with you. I'm struggling with lustful thoughts. I'm struggling with this issue. I'm struggling with lying and cheating. I'm struggling with cutting corners uh, in my business operations. No, No matter what the issue, if we get honest with somebody and not only admit our wrong and confess our sin to God, but invite somebody else into our life as an accountability partner and resolve to make restitution where possible. Here's a thing that I think is missing in a lot of our repentance, that we're failing to make restitution as we ought. And then we walk in a new obedient path. So where do we go from here? The clock on the wall tells us that our time is up, but we cannot leave this place before we have a time of prayer together. And here's my concern. This is not an easy message for me to preach. But I want to say to you that the Lord has laid this message on my heart. Because I believe that there are some in this body, in this fellowship, that are on a very slippery slope spiritually. I see evidence of it weekly. Of individuals' lives because of the choices that some of you are making. You are heading towards spiritual destruction. And I want to issue forth a wake-up call and say to you, it's time to repent and get serious about your walk with God. Listen, friends. The stakes are high. Jesus said, unless you repent you will perish. It would be terrible, my friends, to go to hell because you never repented of your sin. Terrible. Because God has already, in Christ, God has already done everything that is necessary for you to go to heaven. He sent His own Son to die on the cross, to bear your sins, to take your place, to pay your penalty. And listen to me, If you go to hell, don't you blame anyone but yourself. The way to heaven has been opened up for you 2,000 years ago. Jesus died that you might enter into God's presence and receive the free gift of eternal life. No one else could have done that. No one else has done that. And for some of you here today, God by His Holy Spirit is sounding an alarm in your life. And He's chosen, I don't feel worthy, but He's chosen me to be the instrument, even as John the Baptist was the instrument 2,000 years ago. He's chosen me to sound the alarm, to flash the lights, to put off the warning bell. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. My question to you today is, will you snap too? Will you sober up? Will you stop playing church? Will you get serious in your walk with you? How will you respond? And you and I both know that there are always those who will refuse to be sobered up because they don't think they need it. There were some of those same kind of people in John's audience too. They didn't think they needed it. Do you feel your need of Christ today? Do you feel the Spirit tugging at your heart and saying, you know what, yes, you, you, you were part of that evangelistic crusade where you just kind of gave it mouth service, lip service, but you haven't truly had a change of heart and direction. It hasn't reached the level of your will. Maybe today is the day that you need to settle that issue once, once and all." Would you stand and let's pray together? If today you feel the Spirit of God speaking to your heart, I urge you to come to Christ and put your trust in Him. Do it today. See and experience the salvation of God. He is near. He is here. And one of the requisites is that we repent. Have a change of direction father today we thank you for the clarity of your word we would today lord ask that by the mighty work of your spirit at work in our hearts that you would spare us lord from shallow superficial repentance for any who are here who have not experienced a repentance of intellect and emotion and will will you O oh god break through that false repentance Will You work a true work that will produce the fruit of repentance in a changed life that glorifies You? And we thank You, Father, for this forgiveness which is ours when our repentance is genuine and our faith is real and when it's placed in the one and only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in His name that we pray together.